the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's also a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, I'd like to talk through with you an interesting development to me, at least in an upcoming Supreme Court case on affirmative action. Now, as you know, challenges to the admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina are going to be heard by the Supreme Court in a few months. And this week, a friend of the court brief was filed by over 60 large companies. It includes Airbnb, Apple, General Motors, Google, Lyft, Starbucks, Walgreens, a lot of, of companies you know. And they say that there are benefits to diversity in the workplace, which is more likely when the future workforce being trained in American colleges is more diverse. So I want to know from you, is that enough of a reason to allow race-based preferences in college admissions? Well, I think first what you have to do is to understand what's the motivation that these particular firms have. And and I think it's actually an interesting and somewhat surprising one. Uh, if you're running a firm, what happens is you are going to start to take people. And if you have a strict kind of civil rights uh, law in place one way or another, anytime somebody could be hired, the argument could be that this was based upon uh, some illegal characteristic, that there was a disproportionate impact, and that somebody of the other disappointed race or group could file in order to upset that. And businesses can't live in a world where no matter what they do, they're going to be hit with crossfire. So the way to understand affirmative action from the point of view of a large corporation is as follows. This is a doctrine which essentially gets rid of the uh, anti-discrimination law in the direction where you care most. Uh, There are very few firms, given the way in which the application pool starts to look, who are going to have to make special allowances to make sure that male um, engineers from MIT with very high scores on just about everything get an even break. All of the action is going to be on the other side where the scores are demonstrably weaker. And so if you, in fact, introduce an affirmative action program, what happens is you protect these firms from major kinds of legal exposures by hiring people who, by any objective standards, are weaker than some other people who are in the firm. Now, is this good or bad policy? Well, I think the answer really is it depends on what the firm is and who's running it. Uh, nobody really wants to have my opinion on how it is that they should run their own corporate operations, and unless asked, I'm not going to volunteer it. Uh, But what they do is they know exactly what they have, and they can effectively practice a kind of affirmative action which is really highly granulated. Uh, So they may take in large numbers of people with affirmative action credentials, but the training they'll give them, the positions in which they'll put them, the kinds of assignments that they'll have, the teams on which they're going to be placed and so forth, will be closely monitored by the particular firm so as to try to get the best out of these students and to work them with everybody else. And so what happens is if you go back to Gruder in 2003, we had exactly the same brief that was written. And Justice O'Connor, who at that time wrote that opinion, when she came to make her particular decisions about affirmative action programs, what she says is I've got two sets of briefs, and I believe both of them. One of them is from the military, says that we can't run without a diversity program, and the other is from businesses who say exactly the same thing. And, you know, I certainly believe that she was probably correct in that judgment, and I think that a strict colorblind standard, race-blind standard in all cases, would essentially be catastrophic for the way in which you try to run an American industry-type system. Uh, But the other part of the thing that she said there turns out to be regrettably sad. Uh, She announced that she thought that in 20 years all this problem would be over, 
because the educational system would somehow or other be able to compensate for what went on. Uh, you could have endless discussions as to what went wrong with American education since 2003, and it's a very long and complicated item. But the truth about the matter is that the disparities in scores that we see today are very similar to the ones that we had to do early on. You could try to say that these scores are utterly irrelevant. The difficulty with that is within each race group, it turns out they're extremely accurate. And if they're accurate within ace race groups, you have to explain why they're inaccurate when it's going across race groups. So that what you really want to do is to weight other factors much more heavily for one group than you do to the other. My own experience, having done many years worth of admissions work, is that essentially all of the transcripts are about the same. You can have somebody with high grades and high boards. You have somebody with really good extracurricular activities. And the converse is exactly true on the other end. So that putting in these X factors doesn't change the overall distribution in the way this thing runs. So that's the way in which businesses think about it. So then the next question is, well, just how does this tie to college admission? Well, it would be clearly absurd for any business to come forward and say, look, we really need affirmative action in our business, but we think that these colleges ought to be colorblind. And so what they do, therefore, is they basically take a consistent business position and they say, look, you do this, we do this in our firm, you want to be able to do this in your firm, and you'll be better off for it. And so what they want to do is to say these schools should be allowed to do it. Now, mind you, the businesses here are not crazy in what they're saying. This is not the kind of position you see at places like Berkeley and Davis from time to time, in which the departments say that there's a duty to have a diverse situation and there's strict quotas. And the only people who are higher are those people who essentially affirm their belief in this particular form of program. This is a situation where Harvard has got to do what it wants. It's not going to be required to do what the left wing the progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants to require it to do, at which point all the businesses would quickly bail out because they couldn't survive that kind of a regime either. So I think it's perfectly sensible for them to want to say that thing. And if I were a college administrator and I were a law school dean, as I've been, and you ask me what's going to happen, as I will tell you very candidly, you cannot run a modern, complex American institution today uh, without having some kind of affirmative action program or diversity program, whatever you wish to cure. Uh, the imperatives socially are so strong, and the ability to use a sort of a search function to replace a standard change is simply not going to work. You just look at the aggregate numbers, see what the differences are, and what you try to do is to make some kind of adjustment. And the real issue is who makes the adjustment and how much of an adjustment do you make. One of the things to remember is it's the same thing as you see with taxes. There are all sorts of different ways to run a uh, progressive tax, but there's only one way to run a flat tax, right? It's constant rate. And so it is with affirmative action. There are all sorts of different ways to run an affirmative action program, but there's only one way to run a colorblind program, which doesn't work. Uh, so what you're going to start to see is how it goes. Now, this then creates other problems, which we could talk about, which is, you know, just how do you explain what the gaps are? Why do you explain that somehow or other uh, that uh, diversity has a candide-like quality, which makes it the best, best universe in the best of all possible worlds? Well, here's actually what I want to get into. It's a set of questions for you, because I know you love when I throw, you know, more than more than one. Uh, That's all fair. Yeah, fair enough. So here, here we go. Harvard is a private school. So I want to know why can't it do whatever it wants? I mean, should, is it going to get a different ruling from UNC? And I want to know, how does this differ from, for example, uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities that are by design overwhelmingly black? Is this a different 
is it is it different to be able to to you know have uh, racial preferences there? Uh, you ask the most annoying questions because okay. they're all exactly relevant. Uh, the UNC versus the Harvard situation, um, what UNC is under is a constitutional obligations having to do with the Equal Protection Clause. And the question is, how strictly do you read equal protection? And the most famous statement on that in recent years is one by Justice John Roberts, which I strongly disagree with, which he says is that the only way to get rid of affirmative action is to get rid of affirmative action. And what he did is he took that premise to strike down very elaborate deals that took place at the high school level, trying to figure out what busing programs are used and all the rest of this to figure out how you get a more integrated, holistic uh, uh, high school system. And he said, you just can't do any of that. And people continue to do it just as though he had never stated it. And I think the general rule is if you could get a very substantial majority in favor of a compromise programs like that, worked out by people amongst goodwill, the last thing we need is for the Supreme Court to come along and say, you guys really don't know how to run your school district. You don't know how to run your community. Trust me, I can be able to do this because I've got this handy, trusty colorblind principle, which is going to solve everything that's going on. As I mentioned before, there's so many ways that you have to attack this particular program that the local information that these school boards have is really critical. And it's not that you want to sort of withdraw the scrutiny entirely. There can be genuinely racist mandate programs of one form or another. Uh, uh, but what you want to do is you want to go with a light touch rather than going on with a very heavy, heavy uh, type situation. So if he's going to take over this, then it turns out when you get to North Carolina, that's the thing that you have to start to live with. And um, the Constitution is something that nobody can issue, can avoid in some sense. And it applies not only to the enforcement of the criminal law, where I think a colorblind principle is not only salutary, but strictly necessary. Uh, it also is going to apply to this thing, and it will strike all these programs down, unless what they do is they have some fig leaf which says, we're not using affirmative action program, we're using a dodge. We're basically taking the top 10% of the city, of every kid from every school, even though we know that the rural schools have much weaker students than the city schools, so that we're substituting weak for strong students, which they have done in Texas. So I think, in effect, that that's going to happen. Now, it turns out Title IX applies to a private school, as it does to a state institution. And what Title IX says, if you want to take money from us, what you have to do is you have to toe the line with respect to this stuff having to do with uh, um, running an institution that supposedly uh, ignores race, creed, color, doesn't discriminate on the grounds of these things. Well, we know that that's already, to some extent, shall we say, a bit of a farce. Uh, what happens is you start trying to figure out how this works with respect to sports, and there's no more contentious issue than sex discrimination and how many men have to save up their positions in order to support a small number of women so that at the margin where things are done, you know, men are begging to take jobs in which they don't get scholarships. They'll clean out the gym. Just let me swim. Just let me wrestle, which they won't do. And on the other hand, women get huge scholarships in minor sports in order to make sure that you could make the numbers even, at least to the extent that it's possible, given that football, that great generator of revenue for everybody, is a strictly male operation uh, when it starts to come to this. Uh, so they're going to do something. And Harvard basically did the whole thing. They said, oh, we don't discriminate on the grounds of race. And by the way, when we do it, it's absolutely terrific in the way in which it gets done. And, you know, what's going on, if you look at the system, 
and assume that the colorblind norm and the affirmative action is there and the affirmative action norm is not there. They don't come within a country mile of making their case out. I mean, what they do is they get interviews and then what they do is systematically lower the ratings that are given for the Asian kids relative to the black kids. You look at the number of students who come into the school in the various groups. I think there's 16 percent of Harvard first-year students are, are African-American. You look at their median scores relative to the Asian students, and they're two to three standard deviations below. There's no way that some X factor could possibly upset that particular difference. And yet what happens is if you look at the first person, first uh, circuit opinion, it sort of goes like this. It says, everybody understands that diversity is enormously important. Harvard understands that, therefore Harvard wins. Uh, they never spend a lot of time worrying about the data or anything else. And so what's going to happen in this particular case is the plaintiffs are loaded for bear. They regard everything in this particular case as completely hypocritical in the way in which they've done it. And the defendant institutions are going to say, our survival's at stake. Uh, so what's going to happen is you're going to see a battle royal that's going to take place inside the court. The betting early on is that this will actually end up being something like 6-3 striking this down. I hope you don't get the kind of reaction that you got to the abortion cases. And striking this down, it doesn't tell you how much leg wiggle room you're going to have in the system or whatever, because one of the things that judges are always capable of doing is coming up with positions that nobody thought humanly possible and then making them the law of the land. Richard, speaking of the Supreme Court, I want to turn to Justice Thomas, who just recused himself from teaching at George Washington University this fall after protests um, you know, surrounding the Dobbs case, um, including something he wrote, which was maybe we should revisit uh, these old cases on gay marriage and access to contraceptives. And I, and I just want to clarify or have you clarify for, for us, is he saying we need to overturn these? Is he saying we need to return them to the states and Congress to have them do their job because the Supreme Court shouldn't be ruling on this? Why is he, why, why did he say that? What was the reaction from, from protesters and students um, just misreading what he intended? No, I mean, what happens is all of the justices on the Supreme Court, particularly on the conservative side, treated this as a self-contained intellectual exercise in which what you were trying to do is to figure out what the very difficult question is. How do you best overrule a decision if you overrule it at all on the grounds that it's so desperately wrong and in need of such major correction? And well, the question then is, what makes a decision desperately wrong. And for five members of the kind of majority in this case, it was, well, you'll look at the kind of situation with respect to Roe. It was a very badly reasoned opinion. It's got trimesters and all sorts of other things in there. And moreover, what was clear about it is it managed to get no kind of public legitimacy after it passed. And so that if you did this in late January of 1973, people were up in arms. And it turns out 49 years later, they're still up in arms about this. I mean, what they're going to say to you quite simply is, how could you kill babies? And they're going to say, on the other side, babies or autonomy. And then they're going to start seeing the pictures as to what these quote-unquote babies look like. And they look like babies. And so, you know, for the eyes of many people, that's the reality. And the autonomy position is fine when it comes to the question of whether you should be able to have forced pregnancy, have a choice to have sex of one kind or another. But once you are, in fact, pregnant, you're a fiduciary with respect to your unborn child. And on the other side, it goes the other way. Well, that kind of issue just doesn't arise if you're looking at Griswold or you're looking at Obergefell. So let me just give a 
a little bit of the history. Um, when you start going back to Griswold versus Connecticut, the issue is whether or not the state of Connecticut could ban the sale of contraceptives to married couples. Note the married couples was in there. It turned out that there was not a single other state in the union which banned them. And it also turned out, as Justice Douglas managed to find out when he was sitting on the bench, uh, that uh, Liggett's and all sorts of other drugstores in New Haven, um, where I was at the time when I was in law school, um, they routinely sold contraceptives. So this was a law that was on the books, but it was not enforced. When he comes there, he then writes a, an opinion which strikes us all down. And on the practical side, nobody cared. The only people who cared were the academic. This opinion is not consistent with the overruling of Lochner against New York. This opinion brings back substantive due process. All things which were regarded as utter no-nos under the world after the great 1937 constitutional revolution, in which we now knew for certain that substantive due process was a contradiction in terms. You can't have a procedure and substance in the same sense. And then what happens is, you know, you go later on and you get to Obergefell and you try to do the history of this. And what you discover clearly is that the ability of states to um, regulate the contraceptive use, homosexual behavior and all the rest of that stuff, particularly homosexual behavior, that this was absolutely common throughout these entire periods. Some people repealed the statutes, made them keep in case, but it was clear that the regulation of morals was something that was securely within the hands of the particular states. Uh, Obergefell comes along and it takes earlier decisions and it trashes them essentially. And what it says is we read in the intellectual, in the equal protection clause, a right for people to choose whatever sexual partners whom they see, and then it's a violation of that particular system uh, to say that uh, a man um, cannot choose a man if a woman can choose a man. Um, this has got a certain degree of irreal, uh, you know, unreality about it in terms of the social dynamics. If a girl comes home and says she has a boyfriend, that, that's a statement. If a girl comes home and says she has a girlfriend, and most families say, oh, you're a lesbian, you have to come out, there are going to be lots of differences in the social dynamics. But there has been in the United States an incredible change and a change for the better in the attitudes on this question. When I was on the University of Chicago faculty and was spokesman for the whole group, we really had a very tense discussion as to whether or not we could give same-sex benefits uh, to various couples whom we were trying to recruit when it turned out that gay relationships were illegal in the state, or if not illegal, they were not recognized as a form of marriage. And we managed to find ways in which to carry that forward with very delicate compromise. And I was always extremely proud of everybody on the University of Chicago faculty and so forth, that we managed to do this unanimously without precipitating some kind of a major problem. Well, that was at a time when the general sentiment was against gay marriage. A uh, general sentiment was that Heather cannot have two mommies or daddies, all of that stuff. By the time you get to uh, some of the cases later on, it's clear that this stuff is starting to uh, go way down. So you get 2003 decisions by Justice Kennedy, who kind of says that you can't criminalize certain kinds of conduct. And everybody said, oh, it's one thing to criminalize conduct. It's another thing to authorize it. So you can ban criminalization of this, uh, Bowers and Field. Um, you could ban all that stuff, uh, but you don't have to sanctify marriage. And then Obergefell comes along and he says, you know what, you really got to do both things. And what's the public reaction to that? Well, this is a very strange legal decision. Uh, was there any public reaction to try to reverse it? I think the answer was no. 
And so what Justice Thomas is saying, he regards all of these decisions as illegitimate, and not because he disagrees with the outcome, but because he thought that the methodology of substantive due process was completely wrong. And his view of stare decisis is it doesn't matter when there's a strong contradiction to principle. He was not making any social statement about how he would care. Think about these things. This was a lawyer talking to other lawyers. The problem is there are lots of other people, you know, 330 million of them and so forth, who were listening into this legal dialogue. And they thought that this was essentially a threat uh, to what they start to believe. I think the chances that a case like Obergefell would get overruled is virtually zero. I think there's nobody on the Supreme Court, including Justice Roberts, the chief, who wrote a pretty strong opinion dealing with that thing, uh, dissenting when it started to came down. Justice Scalia is no longer with us. Uh, so what's happening is he gives this abstract declaration as a statement of his view. And it's ironic because I'm on the other side of that issue. Uh, I know that Actually, substantive due process sounds as though it's an oxymoron, but I can tell you what the intuition is behind it, and it's not so crazy at all. We get many pieces of legislation that have unfair processes, right? And nobody denies that bias or the inability to be heard are all essentially violations of procedural due process. So then, Tom, the question is, well, why do we care about violations of procedural due process? Is it just, oh, we don't like the aesthetics? No, because essentially it's like playing with loaded dice, as I constantly try to remind people. And if it turns out you're playing with loaded dice, so instead of having a 50-50 chance of winning, you have only a 40-60 chance of winning, uh, you've had 10% of your property taken. Mm. Right? That's what people are thinking about this. So the entire history of substantive due process is that the legislature enacts something which looks like it's a massive transfer of wealth from bad guys to good guys or good guys to bad guys. Uh, we're going to intervene in order to stop that. It's a perfectly sensible type situation. And so then when you start looking at something like uh, the contraceptive case, the first question you have to ask is who's hurt if we allow married people to use contraceptives? And really hard to find any. So then what about premarital sex? The earlier decisions on the morals head of the police power meant you could ban any and all forms of that. Uh, today, the question is, who's hurt? And it's very hard for people to find that, uh, particularly when folks are living together for five years and they get married at 32. What are they supposed to do for the previous 10 years that they're together? So nobody seems to take it all particularly seriously today, given the norm. And so what's happened is the social situation has completely changed. The reading of the police power and the morals head of it has completely changed. And what everybody is starting to think is if you do this kind of thing and push this forward, it's just a massive transfer power uh, from gay couples who are leading perfectly ordinary and decent lives to other people who are skulls who want to bring them down. So in my view, where you want to go on this issue is in a very different place. And there are a couple of issues to mention. Well, one of them is whether or not you can force a religion to accept people who basically engage in marital or sexual activities that are contrary to their faith. And my view is you can't tell the Catholic Church that it has to ordain women as priests or recognize gay marriages. In the Jewish faith, well, there are conservative churches which, in fact, do exactly that and specialize in gay relationships. And nobody can stop them from doing it. It's altogether proper that they do so, and they exhibit their political force. And so I think, in effect, at this point, what you're trying to do is to protect the autonomy rights of those believers who don't accept the modern rule so they can't have their lives told. But that 
that's not what the issue was when you were dealing with Justice Thomas in this case. And the other issue is the question as to whether or not organizations of faith can participate in public programs like the Fulton case, mm-hmm. where the question is whether or not the state, if it gives money to place kids in all sorts of adoptive circumstances can place kids in an environment where they won't perform abortions or they won't authorize same-sex marriages. In all of these cases, you're certainly going to tell the parents that they have the right to exclude or include that organization. But can the state exclude it carte blanche? And what the Supreme Court said is no. But that's completely different from what the Obergefell is, because the issue is not whether you do or do not believe in gay relationships. It's whether or not you understand that the typical world has three sets of questions, voluntary arrangements, coercive arrangements against third person, and funding arrangements from the state, and they each need somewhat of a separate treatment. And so what's so troublesome about many of the protesters at George Washington and anybody else is they see that, oh, it's a gay issue, and therefore we have to agree on everything about this, including the coercive and the consensual. The most notable cases being whether or not you could basically hound and drive out of business a baker or a photographer who won't take care of gay weddings under the anti-discrimination laws. And I've strongly defended the other side uh, that they're entitled to run their things unilaterally. I'm just working on an amicus brief right now to try to help Yeshiva University, which is obviously a Jewish school, to allow whether it will or will not recognize various kinds of gay relationships, and if so, how? And they're not interested in a total exclusion. They want to run their own kind of compromise. And my view is that they ought to be allowed to do so in a way that a public institution, this is back to the University of North Carolina, should not. So what you have to do with Justice Thomas is, you know, you can disagree with him. I think I've just disagreed with on some of these things. But what happens is you want it to be a disagreement and you don't want it to be, let's take to the barricades and shut somebody down and shut somebody down uh, because we're so sure that we're right that there's no reason to let anybody else speak uh, the whole premise of the first amendment is the surer you are of your own proposition the more willing you must be to hear people who disagree with you you've been listening to the libertarian podcast with richard epstein make sure to read richard's weekly column the libertarian published on defining ideas at the newly redesigned hoover.org If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Talk to you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.